0: Hey, Jim. Hey, Eric. Hey. The world really needs a podcast that picks apart where our ideas about race come from.
1: Maybe you're right, Joe, but if we were going to do that
2: really well, we'd need a historian of science, a human biologist, and a cultural
1: anthropologist to help us interpret these phenomena. That's a tall order. Um, guys, I'm a historian of science. And I'm a cultural anthropologist.
0: Yeah.
2: Now that you mention it, I'm a human biologist.
0: Let's Let's do this!
1: this. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race, the interdisciplinary podcast that uses original research plus interviews with experts to ask the important question where did our ideas about race come from? And why does it stick around so persistently?
2: And we put together over 40 content-rich episodes that help people explore those big questions about race.
0: Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. How are you? I am so tired today. How about you?
1: I am fine. I'm good. I'm good. You know what? what? I've to myself that after I listened to the last episode where I just sounded like a miserable old fart that I wasn't going to tell you about all my back pains and my grouchiness. But instead, I want to hear about the awesome research thing that you got from a certain grant agency
0: oh oh yeah the thing that we hope will happen if there isn't a pandemic anymore thanks for the promotion chris so scott maddox libby kogel and i put in for an nsf collaborative grant and we got it which totally blew our minds because it seems like a crazy like mad scientist kind of project Ooh, uh, you tell. Where What's the project? We <laughs> where we got money to build a climate chamber And we're basically going to put a bunch of people into this climate chamber and expose them to extreme heat, both extreme dry heat and extreme humid heat, and extreme cold, so that we can actually test to see if these long-held beliefs about eco-geographical rules and body size patterns that we see actually confer some sort of physiological advantage in these different climates.
1: That's awesome. So that's
0: what we're going to do. Yeah. Congratulations. So we're basically... Thank you. Yeah, no, we're going to kind of torment people and put probes up noses to measure temperature and humidity and measure metabolic rates and thermal imaging cameras and full body CT scans to get like exact limb lengths and muscle mass and, you know, different bone morphology dimensions. It's going to be really cool and produce a massive data set that we will make publicly available when it's all said and done. I
1: can't think of a better use for taxpayer dollars.
0: Right, throwing people in climate changers and shoving shit up their noses. Yeah. I mean, I everyone mean, wants their their taxes to go to that.
1: If there's IRB, it's a hell of a lot safer than subjecting people to the classroom with a pandemic or forcing them to live on the West Coast where there are wildfires raging and soot going oh into their respiratory oh systems on a daily basis. Right?
0: It's true. But I mean, you should totally talk to the UNT HSC, which is we're building this climate chamber down in Dallas, Fort Worth area. And it's basically through a hospital and medical school. And their IRB is crazy rigorous. Like Mm. the feedback they give us is like 26 pages long (laughs) to go through and make amendments. (laughs) I
1: I live in the land of the Tuskegee experiments. So I'm okay with that.
0: that's good do you notice that like they're more strict because of that or do you think it's still pretty lax i think they're more strict well that's probably good It's it's a giant headache but
1: yeah it is but i have to remind myself every time i complain tuskegee experiments happen down the road tuskegee experiments happen down the road not going to complain about them correcting my spelling
0: yeah yeah i can completely agree with that Thanks for like the promo. We're really excited about it. So it'll take about a year for the climate change review to actually get built. And then we'll have two years of data collection.
1: Well, I figured, hey, we're scientists who talk to scientists. We have a forum here for what talking about ourselves, even though we interview ourselves sometimes. So it Every felt day. better than complaining about my day.
0: It did. Do you feel better now, now that you know we're going to torture people with like nasal probes? Yeah,
1: I feel better. I love that. <laughs> It, it reminds oh. me It reminds me of my fi- the favorite anecdote that I got from Evolution's Bite, which is the book by Peter Unger, who we're getting ready to interview, that I'm about halfway through reading.
0: So Peter Unger is where? He's at the University of Arkansas, right?
1: Yeah, he's here in the SEC with me.
0: Yeah. So my husband went to the University of Arkansas. Sadly, he never took any anthropology courses. I
1: was going to get excited for a second.
0: Yeah, no, he, he was a music major. Oh well. so, anyway. <laughs> like, I've got nothing, nothing, nothing. So uh, what is the book again?
1: It came out in 2017 on Princeton University oh. Press. It's called Evolution's Bite. He sent us a couple of Scientific American pieces, which are from, not quite from the book, but relevant to it. Peter Unger's a dental microware specialist, and he trained Kristen Krieger, who we've also interviewed.
0: Who was so much fun to talk to. Yeah,
1: and also has great stories. I re-listened to that. We talked to her a lot about snot in that opening vignette.
0: There was, because I think we all had colds or something at You the had time. a cold. We,
1: we sort of yeah. started talking about energy expenditure and how much energy it takes to like be draining and how much... The caloric value of snot.
0: Value of snot. I'm still curious about the caloric value of snot, and then the differences between a bacterial infection snot and viral infection snot, and allergy snot.
1: I think those. Someone are needs to study this. Legitimate questions that you should use your Very new legitimate. your new climate chamber for climate lab thing.
0: And nasal probes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if anyone will give me money for that. Maybe someday, if I ever get tenure, I can turn my attention to snot caloric value. Anyway, let's bring Peter on.
1: Well, hello. <laughs> hello, Peter. Welcome hello. to Sausage of Science. Yeah,
0: we're super happy to have you here, today How are you doing?
2: Doing okay.
0: How are things down in Arkansas, given the current pandemic chaos everywhere?
2: Well, we're about the same as just about everywhere else. So, yeah, we've got several hundred cases at the university almost Mm -hmm. all of them are students and in many cases it seems to be because they are not being sort of good citizens and and Mm -hmm. hanging out with each other in the evenings and and all that but it's it's no different than pretty much anywhere else here
1: so i'll brag because as a fellow sec school (laughs) as we do in football we are beating you in the number of covid cases we beat Notre Dame, we beat Arkansas every year, and now we're beating you. <laughs> we
0: have,
1: have 2,000 cases in the Notre
0: Dame has, has definitely flattened the curve these past two weeks, but this Saturday is the first football game. So we'll see what happens in the next two weeks after this first football game. I'm going to be very curious. But yeah, and... also my husband is a Razorback, and so he'll be very excited to know that we interviewed somebody today from his alma mater.
2: Oh, well, tell him Pig Suey.
0: <laughs> I will. He was in the marching band, so he, he had oh, wow. vested interest in all the sports, yeah.
2: Very cool.
0: Yeah. But anyway, Peter, welcome to the show, as Chris said. Uh, we like to start off, officially start off these interviews with kind of the same question for everybody, and that's learning about your origin story and how you got interested in anthropology, paleoanthropology, and then how and why you decided to pursue it as a career. Sure.
2: Well, I guess like many other people, it was a visit to the American Museum of Natural History in New York when I was five or six years old, kindergarten or first grade, and fell in love with the dinosaurs. And when I was old enough to figure out sort of what natural history was, I thought dinosaurs meant archaeology. And so I became an anthropology major. And that's sort of how it came to be. Are you from New York?
1: Originally, yes. So where did you go to school
2: for my undergrad? I went to SUNY Binghamton. Oh, okay. And for my grad school, I went to Stony Brook. So I went all straight through in New York. That makes sense to me. Yeah.
1: Kara was at SUNY and I did CUNY and SUNY for my undergrad and, and grad. So.
0: Oh, neat. Yeah. I was at SUNY Albany until I don't know, a year and a month ago at this point, a year and two months ago, something like that. But yeah. That's a,
1: so that's a familiar story to me. And I think to us, Sure. And in fact, CUNY, which I guess
2: later became NYSEP, was one of the grad schools that I was looking most seriously into, largely because of the American Museum connection. Yeah. If they had actually had that graduate program they have now, I might have ended up there instead of Stony Brook. Hmm. Mm. Well, Stony,
0: Brook- yeah, Stony Brook is such so a big draw.
1: Yeah. So, and I want to say too, like we introduced your book, Evolution's Bite, and it, it came out in 2017 on Princeton University Press. And has even more rich detail on your, your background and who you studied with. I just want to say how much I'm enjoying. I'm not done with it, but I love the historical frame that you give it. And it complements nicely what we try to do here, which is the details that get lost in academic papers mm-hmm. are sort of important for understanding how everything knits together.
2: Sure. I think I actually said somewhere in the book, again, it's been a while since I wrote it, but Alan Walker wrote a book entitled the wisdom of the bones, right? I know we'll be talking about Alan Walker later, but it's not the bones that have wisdom. It's the people that give them meaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's critical to the story to tell the tale of those who've done the research and how they came about what they've learned.
0: I think it also provides really important context for students. And like undergraduates, especially, they like hearing the stories of the scientists. And so it takes them away from that pedestal we put them on as you read a name in a textbook and and humanizes the people who do the work and how it comes about. I think it provides a face to those teeth, those pictures of teeth (laughs) and bones that they see in, in textbooks. And I think it's wonderful context for them.
2: For sure. And when you actually explain how people came up with the ideas that they've come up with and how they've generated the data that they've generated, that actually gives a lot more meaning to the results. It puts it in context and it actually allows undergraduates and graduate students and, and of course professionals to really
1: evaluate rather
2: than just simply accept the conventional wisdom.
1: I actually was listening to your book on my walk last night and you describe the lab at Wits where they pull out the trays of teeth. And I think that's the same lab that Lee Berger was showing us this summer when he did some YouTube behind the scenes videos to sort of like stay engaged. So I actually had a a visual image of it, but you said, I thought these teeth that I'd read so much about were just gonna exude their human aura. And then (laughs) I was disappointed that they were just some inner teeth (laughs) <laughs> but then realized all the work that had gone in to building a story out of these was actually in. I think if I'm paraphrasing, was already in my head. You already had that sort of picture, and they were still just teeth. I just thought that was a really nice way of pivoting around that. Sure. The laboratory that I I referred
2: to was actually back when the fossils were in the medical school campus. Mm,
1: okay.
2: That's sort of the old guard place where Philip Tobias. That's what he presided over and where Raymond Dart worked and so forth. All that stuff's been moved to the main campus, thanks in large part to sort of Lee Berger's efforts. But yeah, it's true. My faculty mentor would always say, Fred Grind, they're just rocks, right? (laughs) The fossils are just rocks. And, you know, it really, when you first see a fossil human ancestor that you've spent so much time reading about, At least for me, it really was a letdown because, you know, you look at these things and it hits you. My God, they're just rocks. They don't come with labels out of the ground that tell you what they are. They have no intrinsic and inherent meaning. And everything we know about them came from the people that gave them meaning. So sort of that, I think, contextualizes the whole sort of putting – these things in the perspective of the people who've come up with the ideas.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that contextualization and the process of taking something that is a hunk of rock and trying to get the details and building the story. And so Chris and I talked this in the intro, but we interviewed one of your former students, Kristen Krieger. Goodness, it seems like a year ago, but it might not be that big. Actually, It actually might be longer than a year ago at this point. Uh, and she called you the guru <laughs> of dental microware And we were wondering if you could explain what dental microware is for, you know, folks who have maybe never heard of that term before and what it means and what you can actually learn from dental microware about that specific creature and maybe a species.
2: Sure. Guru may be a little bit overstated. I have trained a lot of people in dental micro research, but I think of my mentors as the gurus. People like Alan Walker and Fred Grine, So I guess it makes sense that she sort of would view me in that in that light. But nevertheless, my contribution has really been to advance the technology and allow us to see things in microware that we haven't been able to see because of observer measurement error and things like that. Dental microware is basically the scratches and pits that form on a tooth surface as the result of its use. Different diets leave different patterns, whether you eat something regularly that's very hard, and that creates pits when you crush those hard foods, or whether you eat things that are very tough, like leaves or meat, and those create scratches as you shear or slice through those foods. Different patterns of microware can tell you something about the diets of the animals whose teeth you're looking
1: at. So one of the things that I thought was a fascinating takeaway that you and Kristen both have honed in on in in your various works, and you In the Scientific American piece, at least, you point to the research she's done with Neanderthals and say one expectation we would have with the robust phenotypes like Neanderthal or Paranthropus is we would expect those giant teeth to have lots of wear indicative of hard things. And yet you describe almost sort of like flourishes. Can you explain maybe the mismatch between what people expected and what you found and why? Sure. This brings
2: up the idea that teeth are typically overbuilt for whatever it is that they're eating, right? I like to use the analogy of a car. If you're driving downtown during rush hour, you're not going to go 100 miles an hour. Your car may be capable of it, and you may need that acceleration if you're trying to get onto the highway. But for day-to-day use, you're not going to tax the engine. Likewise, it can be argued that tooth shape has evolved for the most challenging foods that an animal has to eat. Doesn't mean that it's a specialist on those foods and that it eats them on a daily basis. It could be that they only eat those foods on occasion, but if they have to occasionally eat those foods or they're gonna starve to death, their teeth had better be capable of consuming those foods. Having big, thick, flat teeth may be great for nuts, but if you spend most of your time eating fleshy fruits, it doesn't matter what your teeth look like. And so there's not gonna be a lot of selection on those teeth for that kind of food. But just because your teeth are big and flat, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a hard object specialist. And I think the work that my colleagues and I have done sort of has led to that direction, that way of thinking about it. This is an example of what's been called Liam's paradox. Basically, Carl Liam was a fish biologist who recognized that sometimes animals that have the most specialized anatomy may have the most generalized behaviors. Mm. In this case, and this is something actually that Dave Strait and Bernard Wood said many years ago, when you look at species like Paranthropus or Australopithecus boisei, depending upon what you want to call it. What you'll typically see is you'll see people arguing that this was a specialist nutcracker because it's got really specialized, big, flat teeth with thickened enamel. Now, why couldn't it be that they're capable of eating those foods, but they're also capable of eating foods that are less mechanically challenging? And so rather than being specialists because of their specialized anatomy, this allows them to be hyper generalists. They can take the same food that everybody else without the specializations can eat, plus these mechanically challenging foods. And you need something like microware to ferret that out. Mm.
0: And so let me see if I can get this right and break it down a little bit that what seemingly look like highly specialized, you know, past hominin ancestors might actually just have safety factors for worst case scenarios. That's one one way to look at it. Yeah, sure.
2: So for example, you can eat jello 360 days a year.
0: <laughs> that was the example. You know.
2: <laughs> but if you have to eat rocks five days or you'll starve to death and not produce the next generation your teeth, are darn well, better be adapted to eating rocks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, oh. since we started was it this and no it was a previous and no it may have been this one talking about the nutritional value of phlegm and snot now i'm curious <laughs> about the nutritional value of rocks because you know why not
1: lots of minerals
0: <laughs> lots of minerals not much else calorically
1: <laughs> so and just to sort of go off on that you put this in the and correct me if i'm wrong dave Strait was my I TA for him forever. So that's where I get my paleoanthropology from. And we read the Elizabeth Verbo, Verba? Mm-hmm. Turnover Pulse paper. So I was reading that chapter again last night from your book and sort of thinking this through where we have selection that allows for these groups to spread out. And I think you described it using a Hindu proverb, mm-hmm. but basically like you have people who spread out Drift happens, I think, to some extent. We have specializations in drift. And in the center, you have these generalists. When a, a climatic, when a weather <laughs> event, a major weather <laughs> event happens, you a pulse, you have a turnover of species where the generalists remain and descendants of those repopulate niches. Is that sort of a way of thinking about... Sure.
2: I have to say that when I was in grad school, they forced us to read the turnover pulse hypothesis. It was the most difficult paper I'd ever read to that point. But yeah, you've you've pretty much got got it down. The take-home message is that environmental changes stimulate major turnovers Mm. in the fossil record. And Elizabeth Verba identified what she perceived to be pulses of evolution that occurred at fixed periods of time that seemed to correspond roughly to major events in hominin evolution, like the earliest hominins, and then like the origins of the genus Homo and Paranthropus, and so forth. And she tied those to environmental events, as opposed to the slow, gradual, inexorable change from as the savannas slowly and surely spread across Africa. Elizabeth Verba was a huge fan of Stephen Jay Gould and punctuated equilibrium. And her model fits very well with that.
1: And so I guess the questions we sent and that I we got out of Kristen Krieger's interview is what you're seeing is not that these species like Neanderthals and Paranthropus were overly specialized, but that they also had a significant degree of variability, which we see in our own species mm-hmm. and that we're under appreciating, perhaps in our reductionist models to understand ourselves, the variability that was out there. Would that be an accurate read?
2: Sure, that would be. Obviously they weren't generalized enough because we're here and they're not. But, you know, I mean, some of these species, Paranthropus, for example, Boisei seems to have survived a million years or more, uh, and so that's pretty successful in my book. I would be surprised that's something if we that got gets that lost.
0: Long. Yeah, that's something that gets lost so much when we study, you know, human evolution. That it seems like you know it's a blink, and you know, Paranthropus Boisei is there and it's gone, never to be seen again. But yeah, they were around much longer than we have been around so far, and I think students lose that as well.
2: Absolutely, and in fact, if you look at our lineage. You know, Paranthropus boisei pretty much covers almost the entire range of Homo habilis well into Homo erectus. So yeah, I mean, our own Homo ancestors underwent speciation event when Paranthropus boisei did not. It survived just fine through that. Mm
0: -hmm. So one thing, you, you tell a story in your book that Chris is reading, and I have not been through yet, but using GIS on teeth, and that when you had interviewed at the University of Arkansas, they weren't really sure about using the GIS facilities for you know, understanding tooth dental wear. And we were wondering if you could kind of walk us through one, how that thought process came about and two, how that actually works. Something that was typically used to map you know geological space and land formations onto teeth.
2: Sure. Well, basically back in the, I guess it was the mid to late nineties, University of Arkansas opened up a Center for Advanced Spatial Technologies. This is when GIS, Geographic Information Systems, was just coming into vogue. It was the hot new thing, right? And they started this wonderful new center and convinced the dean, the director of the center was in the anthropology department, that boy, you know, we can use a biological anthropologist to take advantage of this new facility, which in my opinion is kind of bass awkward, right? <laughs> you, you don't, you know, this is a build it and they will come situation. You don't sort of open a facility then find somebody to use it. But nevertheless, I'm not going to complain because it got me the job that I have now. And they put out a a job advertisement saying, hey, we're looking for a biological anthropologist, needs to be somebody who can use this facility, put together a little statement with your application as to how you would use this GIS research facility. Right, And from what I understand, they got all kinds of applications of people who, who were looking at sort of more traditional uses of GIS, things like, oh, well, I can use it to trace out sort of migration routes through Nubia, or I can use it to help try to find new fossils in this place or new archaeological sites in Mesoamerica or what have you. And I had been working on tooth form and function. So what I did was, I I didn't know what GIS was, I had to look it up. And basically when I did, I found lots of pictures of mountains and valleys and things of that nature. And immediately into my head popped tooth cusps and fissures, right? And I said, you know, I bet that I could use this new tool that was designed to map, in part designed, or at least is very good at mapping mountains and valleys to map tooth cusps and fissures. And to that point, nobody had really taken a 3D approach to measuring teeth, which is something we really needed to do. All the measurements that were taken were based on individual landmarks that change with wear. And that's obviously a limitation because teeth wear from the outset. And so I thought to myself, wow, this is a whole surface characterization in three dimensions that doesn't rely on landmarks that disappear with wear. And I wrote this in my, in my, uh, my letter and got the job and spent the first couple of years of my career putting together a laboratory that included the hardware, things like a, a laser scanner, and the software, this GIS software that would allow me to do this kind of analysis. We had to do some what's called interoperability work. That is to make a square peg fit into a round hole. In other words, make GIS work on millimeter and micron scales rather than on kilometer scales. But I had some really bright young graduate students that had been trained at the center and we sat down together and we we made it work. And I think it's been become kind of a standard in the discipline uh, at this point. Other people have taken it much further. Uh, than we initially did and they've come up with other ways of measuring teeth using the same sort of basic protocol but uh, it worked and it was really great
1: so we've been talking about obviously if your book came out in 2017 it's probably two years to produce it and more time to write it so that means that things have changed a lot for you i imagine what are you up to now what's your research what's your lab like where are you headed
2: you know I've done most of the hominins, <laughs> and there's only so many fossils out there to analyze. So, what I've kind of done is I've sort of dedicated the last two decades of my career to developing these new techniques and trying to squeeze what we can out of the fossils. But I've sort of shifted directions a little bit to looking at what's the right word to thinking more about. The relevance of this research and how I can make it relevant to today. Mm. So I've really gone in two directions. I've been working with clinical researchers to better understand the ideology of tooth abrasion and attrition and caries and how we can use surface textures to better understand how those clinical issues come up and how we can use dental topography to predict susceptibility to things like dental caries. So for example, maybe Fisher pattern can help us understand susceptibility to caries. Maybe not all kids need sealants on their teeth, things of that nature. So there's a clinical aspect. And the other direction I've been moving in is climate change research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole goal of my research has been to try and understand how our changing world made us human and how we can use teeth to look at diet and how the signals that we get can be related to climate change as a motive force for human evolution. Maybe we can use teeth to look at climate change on a much more refined scale, on a much smaller scale. And so I've been working with colleagues in the Arctic, and we're now looking at foxes and lemmings and voles and other mammals endemic to that area, looking at their dental topography, looking at their microware in different habitats to try and understand how a changing arctic today is impacting the relationship between these animals and their environments to assess their vulnerability so perhaps we can apply this for conservation efforts so these are sort of the directions that i'm working in
0: where at in the arctic
2: i'm working on the Yamal peninsula of northwestern russia
0: I work in Finland with the reindeer herders. um, Oh, excellent. In in Rovaniemi. And so I I actually just submitted a big grant really talking about climate change and how the folks, the people might be embodying climate change as well. And so hearing how you're doing that with dental wear with the different mammals there is absolutely wonderful.
2: You must know Bruce Forbes then.
0: Oh, I do. I've met Bruce Forbes because he works at the Arctic Center in Rovaniemi.
2: Right. Well, we have a proposal in right now to look at linear enamel hypoplasias in reindeer in Finland so that we can try and tie these hypoplasias to extreme weather events, rain on snow events that lead to mass starvations.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. But also because of those exact rain on snow events, the amount of supplemental feed and you got to wonder how that different process of food that reindeer are now getting versus the lichens they used to be able to get to before are also affecting the dentition. That's a really awesome project, Peter.
2: Thank you. And Bruce is also <laughs> Bruce is also interested in looking at the incursion of roads and the dust mm. that they kick up on the tooth wear. Yeah, so it's now all a matter about finding relevance for applying 20 years of work on fossil hominins to something that actually benefits
1: society today. So just to wrap up, because as you know, we're going to be talking to you again very shortly on another topic, but we want to conclude our individual interviews by hearing about the family work interaction dynamic of being a scientist. So kind of what you do for fun or?
2: Sure. Well, I'm honestly not very good at parsing work in family. And I think that may in part be a function of the fact that I'm old and sort of older academics haven't done as good a job of it as some younger ones have. But I would say that you know, it's all about exercise, running, biking. My wife and I love to go on the weekends out into the Ozarks and chase waterfalls.
0: It's beautiful. I've been, I've been down there into the Ozarks in Arkansas, and it's absolutely gorgeous.
2: Yep. And after 25 years of living here, we still haven't explored the whole thing. So.
1: Well, I can say we switch from calling it work-life or family-work balance to interaction Specifically for that reason, because I don't think there's a generational divide, maybe in how we do it. The stories are all similar, but what we do is what varies. Academics are academics are academics to some sense.
2: Um, sure, sure. And, and I would say that my, um, <laughs> I can even justify going out and spending the time exercising because it's just, it really clears your head and, and allows you to. Mm to think more clearly. And sometimes my best ideas come when I'm in the middle of a run or a bike
1: ride. So,
0: It's restorative. Taking some time out in nature is definitely restorative for me. So I I can empathize with that.
1: Well, I don't know if you caught that. I listened to your book while I do my walking in my exercise so i merge it all (laughs) there you go
2: yeah we all do
1: Uh, well thank you so much for this interview this has been an awesome opportunity and we'd love to hear more about your research down the road as it develops.
0: yeah thank you and we can gossip about arctic research because now i'm totally jazzed (laughs) i'm super excited about it
2: well thank you guys so much it's been an honor